Back in 1994, Julie and I and our young son, Nate, who was four years old at the time, moved from San Diego to Atlanta, Georgia. It was a big move for us. We'd moved across country before, but that was in seminary, and back in those days, we were kind of young and didn't have a whole lot of uh, possessions or anything, so it wasn't too hard of a move. Now we had a baby, and Julie was pregnant with our second, and there was a lot of, uh, of tears and sadness as we left our friends and family in Southern California. But when we arrived, we soon made some very dear friends. We moved into this nice, quiet, modest little neighborhood and met, met Karen and Randy Smith just right across the street. They'd moved in a few months before. They were from Arkansas. Not long after we arrived, right next door to us, the Crockers, Tad and Jenny, and their little four-year-old son, Timmy. They moved in next door to us. They were from New Mexico. Timmy, who was four, and Nate, who was four, became best buddies, even to this day. They're still very, very good friends. And then a few months later, across the street from the Crockers, next door to the Smiths, Jay and Eileen Pease, they moved in also. They brought a couple little girls with them. They were three and five. And despite the fact that they were girls, all four kids, the boys and the girls, got to be pretty good friends and did a whole lot of fun stuff together. We really did become very, very good friends. I suppose our, our neighborhood friendship was rooted in a variety of things, but number one would have been the fact that none of us were from Atlanta. We were all from somewhere else, and we sort of recognized if we're going to have friends here, we're going to need to get to know each other and, and develop it and, and, and nurture it on our own. The Smiths didn't have any children, but they loved being around kids. They were the volunteer babysitters, or sometimes the last-minute babysitters when the other babysitter canceled on us. The kids learned how to get along well, and then after a while, we decided, you know, let's just leave our doors unlocked. We established this open-door policy that anybody who wanted to, who needed something from another house, could go in and get it. If you needed some milk or bread or, or sugar or a tool or, well, no one came to my house for tools. <laughs> Whatever it might be, you were welcome to go to the neighbor and look for it and find it. It was really a, sw a sweet time. In fact, even if the, if, if the kids, if, if you were working late... I could call Ginny, for example, next door, Timmy's mom, and say, Ginny, Julie and I are both working late. Can you be sure and pick up Nate and Stephen after Stephen came along and take care of them after they get home on the bus? We'll be home in a couple hours. Sure, Glenn, no problem. And that thing happened with us, too. Sometimes we took Timmy and their other kids and took care of them. It was a sweet and wonderful neighborhood. In fact, there were several times there when we canceled church or canceled school because of snow. In Atlanta, Georgia, it's true. What would happen is the weather report would show flurries in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We would shut everything down in Atlanta. <laughs> and what we started doing, we developed this little tradition. Every time school or church was canceled, everyone came to our house. And Julie fixed this huge, big breakfast. There'd be eggs and bacon and pancakes and French toast and biscuits and gravy and all the rest. And if you don't think that's true, just check with Julie. She'll tell you it's very true. Those were some of the sweetest memories we've ever had. You know, all the kids packed in one room, having a big breakfast, laughing and joking and having fun. All the adults catching up with each other in another room. How was your week? What's going on? What are you going to do next week? That sort of thing. I'll tell you this. That's the wealthiest we've ever been. And I'm not talking about our income. The wealth of friendships, the kindness, the grace, the love that we experienced with each other. Almost overwhelming even, even to think about it. That was far and away the most invaluable time of our lives. By opening our doors to each other, we discovered that we could open our hearts too. 
And by discovering that deep friendship, we found the friendship that God desires for all of us to have. I thought of our time there last week when I read something from Richard Rohr, a very good theologian, a Franciscan theologian. Rohr tells about a time he invited a holy man to come over from Africa to teach his course for him at his school in, in New Mexico. The holy man got up and began by saying, I'd like to pray. And his prayer was, Lord, do not let us build stone houses. And then he gave his lecture. After the lecture, Rohr came up to him and said, tell me, tell me about that prayer. Why did you pray that? What was behind it? And he said, oh, my friend Richard, you've been to Africa. You've seen that we live in grass huts where we have no doors. Because that is true in my village, my family is your family and your family is my family. We pray that we will never build stone houses because when you build a stone house, then you have to put a door on the front. And if you have a door on the front, you begin to accumulate things inside. And once you have some things inside and a door on the front, you need to lock that door and you spend the rest of your days guarding the things that you've accumulated behind that locked door. And soon our families have grown apart. Let's be clear about his teaching. The things that are acquired are not the issue. The material things that you have in your home and in mine are not the problem. The dollars and cents that we put in the bank to pay for our bills and all that, those are all neutral at the end of the day. The point Roar's old friend was trying to make was what is it you really desire? In the depths of your soul, in the bottom of your heart, what do you want more than anything else? You know as well as I do, in the end of our ends, we'll be known for the love that we've given away, for the grace that we've both given and received, for the forgiveness and mercy that we've experienced, for the kindness that we express to others. What, what Julie and I experienced in Atlanta was just pure grace, the goodness of friendship, the grace of God. In fact, the lesson we took away from that was the willingness to be intimate with another. Tony Campolo, the great old Baptist preacher, says, if we can be intimate with each other, we'll be open then to the, receive the intimacy of God and God's spirit within us. It's the intimacy that allows space for God to come to us. In fact, some would say intimacy is the beginning. Intimacy with God is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm wondering this morning, are you most intimate with your family or your investment portfolio? Do you plan ways you can be with the ones you love and care for the most? Or are you working as hard as you can because you've got to get as much as you can and stack up as much as you can behind that locked door? You know, if I preach a sermon like this in Atlanta, they would say to me, Preacher, you stopped preaching and you went to meddling, so I, I understand. But let me assure you, when I ask those questions, I'm looking at the man in the mirror because I know their struggles for me. Listen again to the text that Kate read a moment ago. Happy are those who find wisdom and those who get understanding, for her income is better than silver. The quest for wisdom in the ancient Near East was the search for a full and complete life, one that honored God, honored the community, and honored all of creation. The book of Proverbs teaches that the creation itself is a gift from the wisdom and love of God combined and in union. Here in chapter 3, 
Wisdom is portrayed as a woman. Her income is better than silver. It's a woman's voice that is behind it. This is not too surprising because the Hebrew word for wisdom is a feminine noun, chokmah, chokmah. It means wisdom. But more important than the, than the grammar, though, is the simple fact that women in antiquity in the Middle East were counted among the sages, among the wise in the community. Second Samuel, for example, example, reports on a couple of wise women, one who was from Tekoa and one who was from Abel Beth Machah. That's in Second Samuel. That's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Even there, women were considered, consider, considered wise. There's also a clear understanding in ancient Near Eastern culture that mothers were the ones charged with teaching wisdom to their children. Mothers were the ones who were in charge of managing the, the business affairs of the household, making sure uh, that they had enough income for this and that and all the other things. Ultimately, the wise woman, as she's portrayed here in Proverbs 3, listen to this, is the voice of God. Do you, you hear that word? That's in the, in the Old Testament itself. It's been around for more than 2,000 years. The voice of God, when wisdom is spoken, is given with a feminine sound. Do we have any more questions about equality? I, I hope not. But as we look around our country, as we look around the world, still there are issues. It's terribly sad that it's taken the church 2,000 years to recognize the equality of women. Let's hope the entire world catches up soon. Well, these wise sages who gathered these proverbial sayings, these wise women who taught them, all understood that their friendship and deep love were the finest of gifts to be shared. This is wonderful, of course, but it's fairly easy to forget, isn't it? We get caught up in all the things that go on in our lives, and the next thing you know, we're sort of pushing this simple truth aside. Did you know that Dave Ramsey, you know Dave Ramsey, the financial guru guy, maybe you've read some of his books, heard some of his talks, According to his research, the number one reason for marriages to break up, for divorce, it's not infidelity, it's not addiction, it's money. It's issues around money. Maybe we all need to recall the times when, when we didn't have a lot, but, but we had enough. When, when Julie and I were first married, we had to pay attention to every single dollar we, we made because we were making a whole lot. I was taking as many little jobs as I possibly could. That first year we were married, I coached the freshman boys basketball team at Harrisburg High School in Harrisburg, Oregon. I made $300 in four months. By the way, we went 13 and three and won our championship, in case you're curious. <laughs> I also was hired that, that year as the youth director at a little church just outside of Eugene, Oregon, where we were in college. I made 30 bucks on a weekend. I had a job in the summer as a baseball coach making $5 an hour. When I signed that, that agreement, I ran out of the head coach's office thinking he must have made a mistake. It said $5 an hour on there. Julie had a full-time job managing an office at an auto parts firm. Frankly, we had as much at the end of the day there as we do now. We didn't eat at any white tablecloth restaurants. We drove a little tiny Tercel car, Toyota Tercel. It was about this big, you know. We ate a lot of pizza, and we had a ton of great friends. Sometimes I wonder at the end of the year now, where did it all go? I make so much more than I did back then. Where, where, where did it all go? What happened to it? What, what do I have to show for it? Anything? Oh, my pension's fine, yeah, but at the end of the day, 
Slowly and surely, I'm beginning to learn what a joy it is to give away gifts like these. Julie and I have happily and proudly made a, a, a pledge to the All Good Gifts campaign. We've made two pledges to the, to the capital work that's going on here at, at First Community Church. We love this congregation. We've loved moving into Columbus. We're excited about all the things that, that God's Spirit is doing in this, in this place, at our North Campus and South Campus and at Akita and all around the community. We're excited to be here. We're thrilled to give gifts to this church in light of the work that we're doing. We're, we're just as thrilled to be writing checks for our son Stephen, who's about to finish his, his education at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He's doing quite well. He's going to graduate. He better graduate in May. <laughs> but I can't think of a finer investment to make in your child. Can you? What a joy it's been to give away. Still, there's that, that shadow side, that, that desire for more to get more. There's a, uh, an old movie that I love. It stars Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson. It's called Key Largo. Maybe some of you remember that movie from way back in the day. Edward G. Robinson plays this criminal who has taken a family hostage. In the middle of this hostage crisis with this family, one of them says to him, what is it you want? What do you want? And Edward G. Robinson in that famous old voice just says, I don't really know. He's kind of a dim-witted character in this, in this film. And Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, who's one of the hostages, he says, I know what you want. You want more. And Robinson sneers and snarls and says, that's it. I just want more. That movie came on last May. I was flipping channels on a Saturday night and I watched it to the end. And it struck me how much I'm like Edward G. Robinson's character. I, I'm not gonna do anything violent. I have no inclination toward that whatsoever. But the desire for more get more just because that I know that I know do you know anyone like that I have a good friend who's an actor if I told you his name you wouldn't recognize it he's not famous he's not he's been on a little bit of TV done a couple movies and things like that but no no one famous but he works all the time he just works he is just like this workhorse of an actor takes every gig that comes his way he's doing quite well financially he's fine has a beautiful house beautiful wife daughter everything's great in his life everything's perfect but he just works all the time I said to him one time why do you work so much he said honestly I'm addicted to applause it's kind of funny, but when he said that to me, I heard the sadness in his voice. You know, sadness leads to addiction. Sadness and sorrow become an emptiness within, and so we try to fill that with something else. There's a person in my life, someone I loved deeply, Someone who, despite his flaws and mistakes and many failures, continues to inspire me even to this day. But he was addicted to heroin. It started out with painkillers, and then it was cocaine, and then it was heroin. It ripped apart his family, ruined his marriage, destroyed his career. After he died, I, I said to a therapist, well, what do you think was going on with that one? The therapist said, you know, I, from what you described, I think he may have had what's called a deep narcissistic wound, something way deep in his soul, some wound, some terrible pain, 
Some awful thing happened when he was a child that just left him empty with a void in his soul and his heart. And so he spent his entire life with the drugs and the food and sex and power and money, whatever else he could to try to fill that emptiness. And it just was a bottomless pit of desire, never, ever, ever satiated. A wound like that is almost, almost unfixable. You see, sorrow and fear and sadness can lead to a, to a bottomless pit for all of us. 2,000 years ago, there was a church in Corinth that was addicted to more, to wanting more and more and more. Paul wrote several letters to this church. In the famous one, the very first letter to the Corinthians, he dealt with their issues. He let them know from about chapter 2 all the way through chapter 12 that he was not happy with them. There was sexual immorality going on in the church. Somebody was sleeping with his stepmother. And there's some other details that we won't get into on a Sunday morning. There were people in the church who, who stepped on the backs of the poor to get more for themselves. They'd come to the Lord's Supper, which in those days was a full meal served where everyone could share together. And the rich would arrive early, eat all the food, drink all the wine, and leave nothing for the poor who had to come later. They wanted more and more and more. They got into fights over who was in charge and who was in power and who was in control. They wanted more and more and more. And finally, by chapter 12, Paul's had enough. He's just kind of ranting and, and raving and getting into their faces, letting them know how foolish they are. And then finally he says, strive for a more excellent way for the greater gifts. And then there's that famous 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it at weddings before, have you not? Hear it today in a new way. Not as words to a young couple beginning their married lives together, but as instructions to you and me as a clear reminder of the pathway to wholeness, to life, to a full and complete life, one that would honor God and the community and the creation even. Hear these words again. If I speak with the, word, with the tongues of angels but have not love, I am nothing. If I have all wisdom and understand all mysteries, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I have all knowledge, everything I could ever want, but I have not love, I am nothing. His words are so clear, so obvious. What does love do? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This love never ends. Never. Other things do. Did you ever win any trophies in high school or college? Maybe when you were younger. Maybe you've won some trophies since then. I had a box of trophies that I wanted to move to Columbus. They did not come. <laughs> I think I know who hid them. I think I know. But you know what? Those trophies... Someday they'll be dust. The house, the car, the closet full of clothes. Oh, it may take a thousand years, but let's be honest. Dust, dust, dust. The singular thing that you and I have that will remain forever is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The love you give and the love you receive. This love, this love will never end. The wisest among us know this is true. Amen.